It's Monday, January 11th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The fallout continues from the siege on the Capitol building and calls for President Trump to resign have intensified. While that is unlikely to happen, Democrats are planning another vote to impeach Trump and compounding the issues in the final days of his presidency, many social media companies have suspended the accounts of the president. With his favorite megaphone silenced and his time and power waning, it seems he will not go silently as he plans to visit Texas this week and will most likely continue to rail against big tech companies. Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor in NBC News, joins us for more. Next, once again, we are trying to learn about the origins of the coronavirus that has caused the global pandemic. A team of scientists from the WHO is beginning an investigation as to how it has emerged. While the leading theory is that the virus jumped from bats to humans, another theory posits that it could all have been an accident, a virus made more infectious in a lab through something called gain-of-function research. Nicholson Baker, author of 17 books and contributor to New York Magazine, joins us to talk about his lab leak hypothesis as we try to understand the origins of COVID-19 so we can prevent the next pandemic. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. When we talk about healing, the process of healing is separate and in fact requires accountability. And so if we allow insurrection against the United States with impunity, with no accountability, we are inviting it to happen again. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thanks for joining us, Ginger. Thanks for having me. We are still dealing with all the fallout from the siege at the Capitol building. You know, one of the most interesting developments that has happened through all of this, the president is is furious right now that he's been banned pretty much on every social media platform. You know, Twitter banned him permanently. Facebook, I think, just until the inauguration. Google and Apple have banned Parler, which is kind of the conservative alternative to Twitter right now. A lot of people were trying to migrate over there, but now you can't get that on those platforms. Uh, so, you know, the, the president is having a difficult time having his biggest megaphone taken away right now. H- how does he move forward right now? Well, I have to say not every megaphone has been taken away. They could simply put out a press release That's, or yeah, exactly. call a press conference. <laughs> <laughs> Twitter is not the only way that any president can communicate with the American people. But he is, as you said, frustrated that he has had his communication of choice taken away where there is no filter, where there's no risk that anyone asks a question um, and where he can just sort of put out what he wants when he wants to. The end of the Trump presidency is in sight. We can say that without doubt. We are now days away. And I think it still remains to be seen what those days are going to look like and whether or not um, he goes quietly. You know, he's got an event this week. And then what happens when if the House starts trying to impeach him this week? That looks like it, it has become an increasingly possible possibility, real possibility. And I just have a hard time believing that Donald Trump is going to sit quietly while that happens. Right, exactly. And, and just as you mentioned, you know, he has all these other, the other avenues, the official, you know, he can call a press conference, official statements from the White House. But the discussion right now that's going on has to do a lot with free speech now, despite private companies suspending the accounts of people who agreed to certain terms of agreements and, and, and contracts and all that. And, and, you know, that's where the the conversation goes now against big tech, against things like that, because the president can't directly communicate with his 88 million followers. And, and then on the other side of things, too, uh, in some of these very conservative circles, 
The president is losing a little bit of support from some of his most ardent followers. You know, people said that he was kind of backing down still. You know, he's not continuing the fight after saying there's a new administration coming in. So he's kind of getting it on all sides, even though those people are still probably with him uh, to the very end. Yeah, I think that those people are probably processing some of the grief they maybe should have started processing in the beginning of November when the president lost re-election. But I would be surprised if they, at the end of the day, abandoned him. And if he reemerged uh, to keep up the quote-unquote fight, I think they would, would forgive all. Uh, but I do think that the president has lost some allies in Congress. We saw members of Congress, including Pat Toomey, uh, Ben Sass, who's been a critic of the president, Lisa Murkowski, who's also been a critic of the president, but have voted with them in some important times, saying that they think what he did last week inciting a mob uh, to attack the Capitol was grounds for impeachment or should be considered for impeachment. And so he has lost some allies in Washington. Right, exactly. And, and that's the big thing. Obviously, there's a lot of talk about uh, tons of calls for him to resign, invoking the 25th Amendment. Highly unlikely that that would happen. Impeachment. Democrats have said that they, they are going to try to vote this week, but then they wouldn't send articles of impeachment to the Senate for months, possibly. So if there was a trial that would happen after the president left, you know, the timing, there's only, you know, a, a little over a week left in the presidency. So it's just going to be tough to see how all that goes. And even some of the allies of the president, Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley, these senators, uh, you know, facing a lot of criticism of their own for supporting the president and all of these kind of baseless claims and playing defense right now. People saying, you know, they're uh, implicit in what happened early on. That's right. I think there's going to be a long discussion within the Republican Party and among the voters in places like Missouri and Texas about the role that Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley played. Um, you know, I saw Ted Cruz as he was walking into the Capitol on Wednesday morning or early afternoon, and I asked him if he thought what he was doing was undermining the nation's faith in our elections. And he scoffed at me. He you know, right. said that was a ridiculous question. Um, I think now he's going to have to answer some real questions about his role, about what he did, and about what happened while they were in the process of trying to subvert the outcome of the election. There's nothing really more to say of it right now. It's all what's going to happen this week. How quietly will the president go? Doesn't seem likely. He has an event on Tuesday in Alamo, Texas to talk about the border wall. We know he's going to be railing against big technology for suspending his accounts. Uh, so we're going to be hearing from the president till the very end. Uh, and, and, you know, just kind of have to, have to see how the week plays out on all this. So, uh, you know, lots still to go through. I think that um, if we're lucky, it'll be uh, lots of speculation and little action, um, but it could be another wild week. I wouldn't unbuckle yet. Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So sitting in their laboratories and taken out of the freezer several times, in Wuhan was this bat virus that is the most closely related organism. So obviously proximity is a massive thing. If, if in the center of this city where the virus broke out. Joining us now is Nicholson Baker. He's the author of 17 books. His latest one is called Baseless, looking into the secret truths of the early Cold War. He's also a contributor to New York Magazine. And Nicholson, wanted to bring you on for this really in-depth piece that you worked on. It's titled The Lab Leak Hypothesis. We've been going through the pandemic for quite some time now. Obviously, we were learning about this virus in real time 
as we're going. We now have vaccines being rolled out all over the place. We're hoping that we can get back to normal pretty soon. But in all of this, in the year, maybe a little over over a year that we've been dealing with this now, we still don't know the origins of the virus. And right now, there's a team of scientists that are working with the WHO that are trying to go to China to investigate some of this. There's been a little stuff going on with them. Some scientists weren't allowed into the country. But really, we don't know where this all came from. And you wrote an article about how you think this might have all been an accident. It might have come out of a lab. And this is a hypothesis we've heard from many people before. So, Nicholson, tell us a little bit about what your thought process is on this. If there's something terrible that happens that convulses the entire world, you want to know where it came from. And I just happened to have written a book about germ warfare in the Korean War and whether or not the United States had used biological weapons in a small way in that war, in an experimental way. So my mind was filled with lab accidents. There were many accidents in the United States when people were trying to concoct some of these germ weapons, which may or may not have been used in that time. So I was just thinking of all that, all of a sudden, suddenly we're all in the middle of this catastrophe. And asking where it came from is not an impermissible question. It's, in a way, the crucial question, because you have to know what you're dealing with. If you're dealing with something that, although it was originally natural, diseases are natural, but was modified in some way in a laboratory as part of a well-intentioned experiment to make a vaccine of some kind against all sorts of coronaviruses, which is one of the research programs that was going. That's a different kind of organism than an organism that has evolved zoonotically in the wild. I don't pretend that I have evidence because there has been no real investigation. What I have is a series of complicated moments that are really weird, you know, and then I have what other people have suspected themselves. And so that I try to give the reader enough to chew on that he or she can make her own decision. You also write about gain of function experiments, which is kind of what you're alluding to right now, where we get these viruses, we try to work with them, see what makes them tick, make them more transmissible so that we can plan for it in the future, you know, if a pandemic breaks out, we already have some experience. We know what to do with it. And there's some evidence that could point to this as well. Explain a little bit what these gain-of-function experiments are like. First, let's give full attention to the dominant theory, because I'm offering something that is a definitely a minority view, and people should know that. And also should know that although I speak for some scientists, many, many scientists think that I'm doing something that is both irresponsible and wrong-headed, you know. <laughs> right. so, so be sure that your listeners know that what I'm saying is a minority view. But the majority view, the zoonotic idea, is that it's a bat disease, and I agree with it, but it's a disease that bats carry a lot of these coronaviruses, and somehow or other, the supposition is that a bat was infected by two different kinds of coronavirus and that a recombinant event happened and they developed this highly, highly infectious kind of virus the bat did and then it somehow it hopped to a human being and in southern China where the bats are and there was no outbreak of disease down there and then somehow that human being went to Wuhan and the disease just took off. The other zoonotic hypothesis is that the, the bats 
infected an intermediate animal, say a pangolin, with this coronavirus, and the pangolin was simultaneously infected with a different coronavirus, and there was the recombinant event happened there. So that's the belief that it happened in the wild with any human meddling and all that. My belief is a little bit different, and it has to do with the fact that for the past 15 years or so, in America especially, there's been a lot of government money has been spent in trying to come up with ways to be prepared for new emergent diseases. So a disease comes at you, you want to not have to spend a year finding a vaccine. You want to have an off-the-shelf vaccine that would be ready almost immediately. And then to do that, you have to try to look ahead at what nature might throw at you. So in American laboratories, virologists would take a virus and then change it a little bit so that it was more infectious to humanized mice that exhibited some of the characteristics of human beings. And so that work has been going on. What's different is that that work started to go on in China. And China has the largest, in this laboratory in Wuhan, has the largest inventory of obscure bad viruses on the planet. And one of them is the closest virus, the closest virus in its sequence to the coronavirus that is now causing us so much trouble. And that's why attention, obviously, focused on this laboratory. You did mention, obviously, about the lab in Wuhan, and the United States has a bunch of similar labs, but we kind of suspect it came out of this area. And I think even one of the principal people that worked at the lab, when they started hearing about this virus, they said, wow, that sounds kind of like one of the ones that we have in our lab. As you mentioned, they house this other virus that is very, very similar to it. It's interesting that Xi Zhongli, who is a distinguished, hardworking, I'm sure earnest Chinese scientist who works at this new high-level virology lab in Wuhan, was told that there was this new strain of very bad kind of respiratory disease. And her first thought was, oh my God, is it from our lab? And then she looked at it, she looked at the sequence, compared it with her database and thought, phew, okay. And she said to the interviewer, this was a piece in Scientific American, I was so relieved, I couldn't sleep a wink. Well, the importance of that is that her first thought was the kinds of experiments that I'm doing, the kinds of bad viruses that I'm storing are like this. This is the kind of thing we're talking about. She worked for years to prove in collaboration with an American scientist, Ralph Barrick, that it was possible to have a direct infection that would go directly from horseshoe bats to human beings without an intermediary. That was one of the things that they were proving, and they would prove that by kind of turning up the dial on these viruses and making them more infectious to the kinds of human tissues that they were likely to encounter, especially the human airway tissue. So there are experiments that are going on funded by the National Institutes for Humanity in North Carolina, in other labs in the United States, and in Wuhan, all funded by American science, the American government scientific establishment, to determine whether there was a way to tweak a certain bat virus, tweak the spike protein of this thing, in order for it to be more easily infectious in human airways. That's not good karma. I mean, that's just not a good idea. The reason why I felt that it was, and other people have done a good job explaining this problem, 
but I just felt it was useful to put it all together in one place, which is that there were very smart, very highly credentialed American scientists in 2014, 2015, 2016, saying over and over again, don't do this kind of experiment. This is called a gain-of-function experiment. That was the sort of the term of art that they came up with. But in other words, don't invent new diseases, new variant strains of highly infectious diseases and test them out and see if they're highly infectious because creating a threat in the laboratory is also just simply creating a threat. And laboratories are run by human beings and leaks happen and stuff gets out. And I want to reiterate what you said. You know, you're not saying this is the truth. This is exactly what happened. You're just kind of putting Mm -hmm. a lot of information together so people can make those determinations on their own. That's why we have scientists with the WHO that are going to China, attempting to go to China to look Mm -hmm. into these origins. So, Nicholson, in the last minute or two that we have here, if you can just at the very end of your article, you have a piece you write. So how did we get this disease, the transmission of it? If you can summarize that for us very briefly at the end right here, I'd really appreciate that. Sure. First of all, we're not try- there's no reason to demonize China in this. If this is a mistake that happened, it's a ma- mistake that happened in collaborations. A lot of different people, scientists internationally, made this mistake. And so it's not something that you want to just point at China and use it as some way to demonize a country. That's a terrible mistake. What happened in 2012, I think it was, some miners were put to work an abandoned copper mine shoveling bat guano in southern China, way down by the border. And they shoveled this bat guano for seven days, and they got sick, really, really sick with an undiagnosable lung disease. Three of them died. And samples of their sickness went back to the lab at Wuhan. But also, the scientists from Wuhan went down to that copper mine and sampled the bats in that copper mine. It was heavily infested with bats, and they brought back a lot of bat samples. And one of those bat samples was called RATG13, which stands for Rhinolophus affinus, which is the name of the bat, TG, which is Tongguan, which is the place the mine was, 13, which is 2013. That was that one of their several expeditions. Okay, that bat virus is, as proclaimed by the chief scientist virologist in Wuhan, Xi Zhongli, is the virus most closely allied to the current human coronavirus. So sitting in their laboratories and taken out of the freezer several times in Wuhan was this bat virus that is the most closely related organism. So obviously proximity is a massive thing. If, if in the center of this city where the virus broke out is the thing most closely related to it, and it's nowhere else in the world except in a tiny copper mine down in Tongguan, That means if you are a self-respecting scientist, you have to knock on the door of that laboratory as soon as possible. And instead, there has been no investigation. It's not that it's proven. It's not that it's absolutely true. It's just that it's a scientific possibility. Nicholson Baker, author of 17 books, contributor to New York Magazine. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Oscar. It was a pleasure. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.